So it's my great pleasure today to introduce my friend Zane Fulbright. Zane is almost a native Montanan, but he was really raised in Great Falls. Um, but there was a, a short, circuitous route to get there. But Zane has been uh, the monument manager at the Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument since 2019. When I first met him, he was the archaeologist for the BLM. He's been based in Lewistown for quite a while with the BLM since 2005, so long time. So Zane uh, is steeped in this region, um, and, he, and there's no better person, in my view, uh, to manage that monument, that really important monument in central Montana, than Zane Fulbright. Uh, Zane uh, drafted the monument's homestead overview, completed the National Register uh, of Historic Places nomination for several of the homesteads uh, in the monument, and he also served on the State Historic Preservation Board, Review Board. Um, so many of you have um, had projects reviewed by Zane or on the committee that he was on. So I'm going to turn this Monuments and Memories session over to Zane, and then he's going to have about 25 minutes <laughs> to talk and show you beautiful photos. <laughs> I should also say that the Monument is one of the sponsors of this conference, and there's a gorgeous ad in the program. If you haven't seen it, you need to go look at it because it's beautiful. So thank you for sponsoring the program. And so we'll do Zane first, and then I'll introduce our second speaker, and we'll have questions at the end. So Zane. All right. Thanks, Charlene. Okay, I'm going to try to keep your attention on the photos rather than me. Um, okay. The Missouri Breaks. You have to say it just right. The Missouri Breaks. It's a little gritty. Just like the Missouri River. So get that in your mind. This is what we're talking about. You have a little respect, a little awe for the Missouri breaks. The very name evokes images of the Old West or the Badlands crossed by horse rustlers or cowhands or for the Lewis and Clark buffs, and I think there are several in here, the White Cliffs and the Corps of Discovery. The landscape always evokes images of a beautiful yet harsh landscape. And yet we almost lost that landscape, this treasure, to development in the 1960s and 1970s. It's part of the history that most people aren't aware of. So that's what we're gonna be talking about today. So I know look, most people are here for Yellowstone, so you might not be really familiar with the, the break, so I'm gonna give you some descriptions. So as you approach it in north central Montana, the cultivated fields and open range just fall away to the breaks, down to the gorge where the Missouri River cuts through the steep ravines. And, and it is down at the bottom, the focus, the star of the show is the free-flowing Missouri River. For generations, this river also segregated the territories of the Crow from the Blackfeet, and it was also occupied by the Grovan and the Chippewa and the Cree and the Métis, and even the Shoshone came up. So originally this area, though, was a huge inland sea. Its sediments were laid down in horizontal layers, resulting in beds of sandstone and shale. These layers have since been faulted and uplifted and modified by volcanic activity and sculpted by glaciers. As the rivers flowed, flooded, and downcut through the layers, 10 million years of geologic history have been exposed, and harder volcanic plugs and dikes rise out of the sedimentary layers as dark landmarks. The breaks also offer important habitat for a wide variety of wildlife, from trophy bighorn sheep and elk, 
majestic golden bald eagles, short-horned lizards, prairie dogs, as well as paddlefish and pallid sturgeon whose ancestors applied the waters for millions of years. Okay, this is the area we're talking about right here. So there's Fort Benton. We're talking all this to here. So that's Robinson Bridge, or James Kipp Recreation Area right there. So if you live on the High Line, you know Robinson Bridge. That's how you get home. So and as you can also tell, it's pretty remote country. So as visitor Ben Stein described it in 1949, this is an 1895 map because it makes it even better. In 1949, he said, I dropped into the middle of this ink-free chunk of the map. <laughs> so geologically speaking, so some portions of this region take on badland characteristics while others are heavily forested with, with ponderosa pine and, and Rocky Mountain juniper. And as you can tell, erosion is the dominant geomorphic process. So also it's pretty cool just looking at the different geologic formations. There are really good, once you get an eye for it, really good indicators on where it changes based on slope and color and hardness and everything. So the white cliffs, that's that top part, Eagle Formation Virgil member. And you probably know that feature, it's hole in the wall. Okay, so you also have um, <laughs> a little bit, something else that affected things, and that's um, the, the glacial impacts. So you can see where the glaciers were, where the glacial lakes were, and the part of the Missouri River that's unglaciated in there. So what happened between geologic history and our story? About 13,000 years of tribal history, which in the conservation story gets very little mention, um, but does get factored in slightly archeologically. So the archeological record gets mentioned, the, the culture gets very little mentioned in the conservation story. This petroglyph is at Eagle Creek, and we were just talking about that just a couple minutes ago. Okay, Lewis and Clark, everyone's familiar with them. They waxed poetic on the breaks. Lewis, May 31st, 1805. The hills and river cliffs which we pass today exhibit a most romantic appearance. With the help of a little imagination and an oblique view at a distance are made to represent elegant ranges of lofty freestone buildings, having their parapets well stocked with statuary. It's descriptions such as this that it attracted attention to this part of the river. So that's their map, just zoomed in. Stone walls, they reference the stone walls on their map. Then in 1840, Prince Maximilian von Wiet published in English here, travels in the North American interior about his 1832 to 1834 travels, accompanied by Carl Bodmer, the artist who's who'd made this area famous. The images associated with this journey romanticized and popularized the Missouri breaks. This map most people aren't as familiar with. 1855, it's associated with the Lame Bull Treaty, primarily between the Blackfeet and the government. Washington Governor Isaac Stevens uh, met with the, the Blackfeet and other tribes, but primarily the Blackfeet. And it really kept the focus on the Missouri River. Just zooming in, I know it's fuzzy, it's not your eyes. Um, the Judith River and Dog Creek come in right there. This is the treaty site, right in that area. Um, and that's, this is where the Blackfeet seeded much of this ground south of the Missouri River where it became common hunting grounds for a lot of the other tribes. 
All right. This image captures a century of history on the Missouri River. Couldn't do any more slides. I wanted to. Steamboats, <laughs> river highways, America's, America's inmost port, Woodhawks, Bullwhackers, the Nez Perce War, military and trade forts, horse rustling and wrangling, ranching, homesteading, drought, depression, war, beginning of commercial river, river recreation and river trips. So that kind of captures 100 years. There was a lot going on on the river. This is a great photo from the Montana Historical Society. Okay, now, now we're getting into conflict. So this period, and this is where Kira is going to be talking next about Emil Dontigny's involvement of the Missouri River, and that's Emil Dontigny. You'll hear a lot more about him if you don't already know about him. It's a few acronyms with some, <laughs> some, what that means in case I throw them out. Okay, in 1958, spurred by escalating pressures on America's outdoor resources after World War II, Congress commissioned the Outdoor Recreation Resources Review Commission to study the outdoor recreation needs for the nation. Established under President Eisenhower and reporting, then reporting to the Kennedy administration, the work of the commission was a driving force behind many gains of the last 40 years, including major expansion of the national park system, success of the wilderness movement, comprehensive outdoor recreation plans in every state, and the Clean Water Crusade. The 1962 report led directly to establishment of the Bureau of Outdoor Recreation in 1963. It's now defunct, but it was important then. So the BOR, as they were called then, their main responsibility was directed towards assisting the state and local governments to develop their outdoor recreation resources. To make it possible for them to carry out their responsibilities, Congress passed the Land and Water Conservation Fund Act in 1965. So we continue to use the LWCF to this day to acquire land and easements along the Missouri River. All right. So from the report, just want to zoom in on a couple things. So this is the report from 1962. What are the recreation wants and needs of the American people now, and what will they be in the years 1976 and 2000? Key dates. At that time, who knows, maybe bicentennial, but key dates. Okay, so while some efforts were underway in the nation to develop recreation demands, other interests focused on the increasing production needs of a growing American economy. These tasks involved the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the Department of Interior's, Interior's Bureau of Reclamation, the other BOR. The Corps was tasked with the National Park Service as a token partner with examining the pros and cons of developing a series of hydroelectric dams on the Missouri River. The report that documented the findings highlighted the benefits of a program of reservoirs, of reservoirs, construction, hydroelectric, recreationists' expenditures, and increased forage production. The proponents pitted this vision against a Lewis and Clark National Wilderness Waterway, with benefits including visitor expenditures, intangible value of preservation, and social benefits derived from the inspiration, enjoyment, and education of the people. Countering the intangible value associated with the wilderness waterway, intangible benefits would also accrue if the area were developed by means of dams and reservoirs but they would be based on activities associated with large bodies of water. Best estimates indicate that probably greater numbers of people would be attracted by recreational opportunities at reservoirs than by those inherent in the preservation concept. That's directly from the report. To attract broader geographic support, the reservoir plan also included the possibility of providing irrigation water for lands in the Milk River Valley by means of diverting stored Missouri River water 
through the preglacial channel of the Missouri north of Virgil and into Fresno Reservoir. So if you're familiar with this part of the country, it, that'd be quite an engineering feat. Okay, so what were the alternatives of, the, of this report? Dams and reservoirs talks about that installation at six sites and incorporate extensive power and recreational development versus the National Wilderness Waterway, which at that time was proposed as a 180-mile Lewis and Clark National Wilderness Waterway. And then you can see some of the other features associated with it. They do highlight a park headquarters or visitor center in Fort Benton back in this 1963 report. And they broke it out into three different sections of the river. So um, this that has the three zones. It's kind of hard to see, so I'll just kind of let you know. We have the Fort Benton Dam, the Virgil Dam, Iliad Dam, Cow Creek Dam, the Heller Dam, Rocky Point Dam. I think that's the lowest one, Rocky Point Dam. So six dams on the Missouri River in that area. Okay, here are just two of the maps for the plans. So plan one has the dams on it. This is, and this is the one for the Wilderness Waterway. So it's kind of interesting how they highlight the benefits from the different plans. Nice hydroelectric plant right there at Iliad. And there'd be several of those scattered along the river. And the one thing you can't really see, it gets washed out on this a little bit, the recreation development with the dams is, here you can see this bikini-clad mom with her kid playing on the beach right here. And there's no recreation potential with a wilderness waterway. So, and, and obviously there's fishing, but not in the river. So, so yeah, so, so just a little bit of a different approach there. Okay, since the report was so heavily weighted to dam construction and river development, by the way, there were 11 plans in here. 10 of the plans had dams, one of them had a wilderness waterway. Um, since it was so heavily weighted to dam construction river development, the Park Service, National Park Service, drafted a supplement to the 62 report. Now this suppl supplement had its roots going back to 1960. Montana Senator Murray in the spring of 1960 requested that the National Park Service study a wild section of the Missouri River between Fort Benton and the upper reaches of Fort Peck Reservoir. It came at a time when the Park Service, under Mission 66, was, and most people associate Mission 66 with Yellowstone, um, was giving increased attention to its long-range plans for the National Park System, studying by category voids which should be perhaps filled. Wilderness waterways was one such void. So Lewis and Clark National Wilderness Waterway would be broken into three units, and I kind of showed you those sections already. The upper one had a more agricultural setting and a lot of private land. The White Rocks Badlands was for scenic nature, and the Fort Peck Game Range unit had game range and wildlife management. So it's, yeah, unfortunately on this projection, you can't really see it. I already pointed out the different zones, though. So, All right. Public hearings were held in April and May of 1963 in Lewistown, Haver, and Malta, with inconclusive results. Public op opinion was split on this. Some said the ranching economy and associated land uses, and particularly grazing permits on public lands, should not be infringed upon by any other land use concept at the possible expense of livestock grazing. Big theme, real big theme. Park, conservation, and historical associations, many of them national, generally favored a wilderness waterway, although in many cases a preference was expressed for a wilderness waterway in conjunction with some reservoir development. 
Now, electric cooperatives, chambers of commerce, labor and some farm organizations, and civic clubs generally favored optimum reservoir, reservoir development. And among these organizations, they generally favored um, Plan 4. We'll get into that in a little bit. In 1963, Governor Tim Babcock expressed the opinion that there is no immediate need for any development in the study reach, including development of additional power sources in Montana, and that implementation of any of the 11 alternative plans of development would be untimely in view of the federal government's present fiscal status. Multiple use should be a major objective of any plan that may be pursued. So you have a governor of one party and a president in a different party, and so it affected things a little bit better. Okay. So after accepting public comment, the agencies determined that Plan 6 was the best plan, assuming the final selection is governed by a desire to preserve most of the study reach in its present natural state. So Plan 6, had it still had one dam and reservoir above Fort Benton. The report states, to further assist in final selection of a plan of improvement, attention is invited to the fact that preservation of significant portions of the study reach in their present natural state entails, in addition to the cost of such preservation, sacrificing the power that could be produced and the economic advantages associated with optimum reservoir development. So this plan would entail sacrificing 720,000 kilowatts of installed capacity um, sacrificing the additional river crossings and the substantially improved access associated with optim optimum reservoir development and sacrificing annually $9.9 million of excess benefits um, from the development. No further consideration was given to Plan 7 in the Wilderness Waterway. So then nothing really happened for a little while, at least on, on the, the official side. Um, then, in 1966, the state of Montana gave official recognition to this segment of the Missouri River as a component of the Montana Recreational Waterway System. This designation, however, had no specific management requirements. At the same time, the Senate Committee on Interior and Insular Affairs requested the Secretary of the Interior to direct the Bureau of Outdoor Recreation to study the Middle Missouri from Yankton, South Dakota to Fort Benton with the objective of enhancing recreation resources in the area. The end result was a 1968 publication entitled The Middle Missouri, A Rediscovery, which recommended protecting the free-flowing stretch of the Missouri between Colbanks Landing and the western boundary of the Charles and Russell Wildlife Refuge. And this segment would be called the Missouri Breaks National River. Then on October 7th, 1968, Congress passed the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, establishing the Wild and Scenic River System. Eight rivers were designated as part of the original components, and 27 rivers, including the Missouri River from Fort Benton to Ryan Island, were designated for study as potential additions. This study required a determination of suitability and of suitable recommendations pertaining to administration and management of the river and its immediate environs, in essence, establishing a corridor. So now that we have the river, or the Wild and Scenic River Act, Congress started drafting efforts to include the Missouri River into that system. In 1970, Congressman Saylor of Pennsylvania introduced a bill to establish the Missouri Breaks Scenic River. In 1971, Senator Metcalf of Montana introduced a bill to establish the Missouri Breaks Scenic Recreation River. Both of these measures were defeated. Also in 1970, the Missouri Timeless Wilderness was published in Montana, the magazine of Western history, subtitled 
a feature presentation of the journey of Prince Maximilian of Neuwied and Karl Bodmer on the Upper Missouri in 1835, their observations and depictions, and the modern day threat to one of America's last remaining wilderness waterways. That's a very long subtitle. Um, anyway, it consisted of three articles that argue for the wonders of the Missouri Breaks and the importance of the landscape as depicted by Karl Bodmer. The third article decries the progress and improvements proposed by the Corps of Engineers. Specifically, author Mark Brown compares the thought of the proposed dams to the, quote, feelings which come at the funeral of a close friend. Then in 1971, the Wild River Task Force called for, that was called for in 1968, included the Bureau of Outdoor Recreation, State of Montana, the BLM, Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Park Service, Bureau of Reclamation, the Forest Service, and the Corps of Engineers. The following year, public information meetings were held in Fort Benton, Havard, and Lewistown. Don Fow of Lewistown was chairman of the Missouri River Development Association. He stated often and in many venues, quote, will there be no end of wild river type proposals? Will this harassment never cease? How can farmers, ranchers, and others in our small community fight against those who would devour our land? It was a nice spread in the Lewistown News Argus, actually. An alternative perspective was presented by State Representative Dorothy Bradley of Bozeman. Quote, need for protection of the river has been increased, she said, by uncontrolled subdivision and coal energy development. The Roadrunners Boat Club in a November 18, 1972 Billings Gazette article came out against a wild river stating, so the boat club came out against the wild river, stating, Providing recreational capabilities for the public and taking some of the load off of our nation's public parks is of prime concern. Once again, a wild river is presented as having no recreational value, but dams with reservoirs would. In 1973, Senator Metcalf once again introduced legislation to establish the Missouri Break Scenic Recreation River, and once again this effort was defeated. That was right there in Fort Benton. Um, coinciding with the federal efforts, a proposal was introduced in the Montana legislature during the 1973-74 session proposing to establish a system of state wild and scenic rivers with the Upper Missouri a component. This effort went down like its federal counterparts. On May 29, 1975, the BLM submitted a proposal, a proposed report to Governor Tom Judge in response to the 1968 Wilderness Act, Wild and Scenic River Act. The BLM proposed a few changes. Of the 170 miles included in the original proposal, the BLM advanced only 128 miles from Virgil to Rocky Point, removing the 42 miles from Fort, Bent to Fort Benton to Virgil due the, to the extensive private ownership and the cost of the required protection. Of the remaining 128 miles, the BLM proposed two wild, one scenic, and two recreation segments. The BLM also proposed that they would administer the wild and scenic rivers rather than the state of Montana or the National Park Service. Primary emphasis would be on maintaining and enhancing the aesthetic, scenic, historic, fish and wildlife, and geologic features. All recreation facility development should be consistent with the protection of the river environment. So the BLM put out a fact sheet to address some of the more pressing concerns. The proposed resource management area for the Wild and Scenic River included the minimum acreage necessary to protect the values qualifying for inclusion in the Wild and Scenic River system. It was tied to the visual, visual corridor from the river. So BLM determined that would be 147,800 acres. Some of that was already in public land ownership, 
they proposed about 30,000 acres in scenic easements and proposed acquiring just over 6,000 acres. The BLM proposal corresponded with Senator Metcalf's legislative action when in May 1975 he proposed the 149-mile segment from Fort Benton to Fred Robinson Bridge as a component of the national system. This shifted the BLM's proposal and reduced the total river mileage. Senator Metcalf modified his previous proposal to take into account increased protection of agricultural interests along the river. The bill made it through the Senate, finally, in December 1975. Nine months later, in September 1976, with the efforts of Congressman Melcher, a modified version made it through the House. Fighting this proposal, though, to the bitter end, on October 8, 1976, the Federal Power Commission stated that the proposed designation of the Missouri would conflict with the possible development of major amounts of hydroelectric power and recommended that the power benefits be thoroughly considered in deciding whether or not to include this reach of the river in the National Wild and Scenic River system. They knew that the only, pro the only prohibited activity under the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act is the development of water resource projects. The Missouri breaks, once designated, must continue in its free-flowing state. The proposed legislation contained several provisions that ensured traditional uses of the river area. Also, the river area was to be administered in accordance with the provisions of the Taylor Grazing Act to continue to permit hunting and fishing in the river area and under the principles of multiple use and sustained yield. Rights of way would also continue to be issued for federal lands in the river area. And to remove all doubt as to the awarding of a particular right of way, the legislation authorized the construction of a bridge across the river near Winifred to relieve the increasingly inadequate ferry service provided at four points along the Missouri breaks. On October 12, 1976, President Ford signed the act, adding the Upper Missouri to the National Wild and Scenic River System and granted the BLM administrative responsibility. At the time, and possibly still to this day, the Upper Missouri National Wild and Scenic River is the only wild and scenic river to have multiple use, a multiple use mandate included in its designation. On the heels of the designation came the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail designation, including the 14 Lewis and Clark campsites within the Wild and Scenic River, and also the Judith Landing Historic District National Register of Historic Places listing. And as permitted under the new Wild and Scenic River designation, in 1982, the PN Bridge at Judith Landing was constructed. Now that's the end of the story, right? No, wrong. Okay. <laughs> In 1996, Stephen Ambrose's Undaunted Courage was published and reawakened or established anew American interest in Lewis and Clark, the upcoming Lewis and Clark Bicentennial, and the Missouri River. And it really became more like a frenzy. People ask, can one book have that much effect? Yes, this book socially and politically changed the Missouri River. So here's a very government-looking document for you. This is the 1999 Federal Register notice announcing the Central Montana Resource Advisory Council meeting to discuss a management matrix involving six wilderness study areas, a national backcountry byway, the Nez Perce National Historic Trail, the Upper Missouri, Upper Missouri National Wild and Scenic River, and adjacent public lands. Why now? Thanks, Stephen Ambrose, and the upcoming, upcoming bicentennial. As you can imagine, controversy ensued, and the court of public opinion weighed in heavily in the local media. The arguments from the 1960s and 1970s against the Wilderness Waterway as well as the Wild and Scenic River were being repeated. Preserve ranching and local traditional ways of life. 
Twin resolutions were introduced in the Montana legislature opposing the proclamation in an attempt to dissuade President Clinton from creating the monument and to, quote, send Washington a message that Montanans are united against further designation as well as other public land grabs throughout the West. On January 17, 2001, three days before leaving office, under the authority of the Antiquities Act of 1906, President Clinton established the Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument. The Lewistown News Argus headline read, quote, President leaves indelible mark on central Montana. Another one, designation of Missouri breaks met with praise, disappointment. Quoting Senator Butcher, if Clinton can declare a monument, then Bush can undeclare a monument. <laughs> Governor Judy Martz, Senator Conrad Burns, and Congressman Denny Ruberg all opposed the proclamation. Senator Burns said, this action which is against the will of Montanans around the upper Missouri flies in the face of democracy. Montana House Representative Bill Thomas stated, if I were the BLM, I wouldn't be in a hurry to order new signs. Not yet. On the opposite side, Hugo Turek, a local farmer and chairman of the Central Montana Resource Advisory Council stated, if our congressional delegation had come up with a congressional solution, we could easily have a national conservation area instead of a national monument. We have three years now to develop a management plan for the area and hopefully the people will say, let's work together now. So let's click there. <laughs> okay, um, let's revisit this slide. This slide. So in recreation as defined in 1962, emphasized developed recreation rather than a conservation focus. Yet what materialized reflected a change in attitudes and the relationship the American people expected to have with their public lands. In 1976, we identified the Wild and Scenic River and the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail for preservation. And in January 2001, the Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument and all of its objects of antiquity were protected. In December 2008, the Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument Resource Management Plan was signed, giving the BLM direction on what objects of antiquity require management and how we're going to manage them. So where are we now? The Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument, a unit of the BLM's National Conservation Lands, consists of 377,000 acres from Fort Benton down to James Kipp Recreation Area and the Robinson Bridge, one interpretive center in Fort Benton, one wild and scenic river, two national historic trails, six wilderness study areas, the Calcrick area of critical environmental concern, as well as 22,000 acres of oil and gas leases, 119 grazing allotments, 404 miles of open roads, and six airstrips. We continue to follow a multiple use and sustained yield mission while also working to conserve, protect, and restore the special area and its unique resources. Former Secretary of Interior Ken Salazar stated, it is the national conservation lands, including our monument, that contain the forests and canyons that families love to explore, the back country where children learn to hunt and fish, and the places that tell the story of our history and our cultures. The Mighty Mo continues to be the center of debate, but we continue to work to keep it this special place that so many people have fought to protect, experience, and appreciate. Thank you. <laughs>